Welcome to Live Your Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Lena. In this episode, I talk to Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moss and Spark Toro. Rand dropped out of college to work with his mom, and at one point, he had $500,000 in credit card debt. He was able to eventually pay that off and grew the business to become Moss, a very successful marketing company focused on search engine optimization. Rand grew Moss to have $45 million a year in revenue, had hundreds of employees, and had raised millions in venture capital funding. And a few years ago, he stepped down as a CEO and left the company this year. He recently published his book, Lost and Founder, and is now working on his new company, Spark Toro. He talks very honestly about dealing with depression, failures, and the realities and the honest truth of what being a startup CEO is really like and what he has learned about life and success from his journey. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Rand, thank you so much for sharing your story with my listeners. Let's start with your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Flemington, New Jersey. But three months later, my parents moved out to Seattle because my dad got a job at Boeing. Oh, I see. And, uh, yeah, I spent I spent all my childhood, in fact, my whole life here in here in Seattle. Um, what were you like as a kid? <laughs> um, awkward and kind of nerdy, and didn't have a lot of friends. And um, yeah, gosh. I don't know how else to describe myself as a kid. I was, I think I was uh, pretty, you know, desperate for people to like me, uh, which, which persisted into probably my, my early twenties as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know, insecure, you know, kid stuff. We think we often think that we're the only ones who feel that way, but it's actually the case that most people feel that way. Right. I, I think that's true. I mean, I, my general sense has been that the people I like best as adults are those who um, have had some challenges and have some empathy as a result of it. Of course, because if we don't understand the struggles that other people go through, we will not be empathetic towards other people, right? Uh, It's definitely harder. Yeah. 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 How were your parents like? Uh, Let's see. Well, my dad... Uh, my dad, you know, worked at at Boeing basically for uh, for thirty years to the week. Mm-hmm. He uh, he retired after, um, I think, like on his thirtieth anniversary, basically. And uh, yeah, it was sort of a very uh, traditional guy in that respect. I see. Um, yeah, he um, he was really he was a really sweet, good dad, especially when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he'd take us whatever, to the zoo on weekends. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he'd like to, um, play ball with me and that kind of thing. I think, yeah, I think as he got older, probably sometime when I was between the ages of 11 and 14, 15, I think, I think my dad experienced some severe mental and emotional issues and oh, wow. kind of made him a, 
like an angrier person. Oh, I see. Yeah, and I think unfortunately my brother and sister kind of bore the brunt of that as mm. they were growing up. Um, I see. So they didn't they didn't have quite the experience that that I did with him as a as a young kid. I and see. I feel, yeah, I feel sad about that. Mm. Um, my mom is and always has been a really really sweet person, um, but also a bit of a kind of an enabler for my dad. I mm-hmm. think that she makes a lot of excuses for him and um, and clearly loves him and and I think my you know my dad loves my mom too yeah uh, but yeah so their the relationship could be a little dysfunctional at times and there was some um, there's definitely a lot of hiding things from each other that they think won't go over well which is very weird to me um, I think wasn't as a kid right I was sort of like oh okay don't tell mom this don't tell dad that yeah uh, but you know, then you get you get older and you see that as wait a minute, that's that's not how you're supposed to tell kids to have to do that, and right. that's a real weird thing. Um, so you know, but uh, yeah, I think I think we were really lucky. I mean, my um, my mom also worked. Yeah, uh, she ran her own business from mm-hmm. you know starting from when I was two years old. She started this marketing consulting company um, in the Seattle area and worked with a bunch of local clients and so yeah my brother and sister and I I think uh kind of grew up under her desk in a lot of ways right instead of going home after school a lot of the times we'd go to her office and uh you know wait until she was done with work and um as a result learn some photoshop you know those kinds of things yeah well and then you dropped out of college to start working with your mom right yeah yeah I did Mm -hmm. um so my mom had been running this marketing consulting firm for a long time, and I ha- had started building websites for some of her clients in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And when uh, when I I, I uh, sort of got into a big fight with my dad, I think, what was that? Yeah, maybe 2000, summer of 2001, and mm-hmm. he said, you know, well, I'm not going to pay for your college anymore. And, wow. uh, and I said, fine. And so I, you know, I paid my own way for, I think, two quarters, maybe one or two quarters. Mm-hmm. And then kind of decided like, hey, this is, this is really expensive and I want to work more and I don't, I don't need this degree. I don't feel like it's going to be all that valuable, um, which maybe was short-sighted, but ended up working out okay. Yeah. Uh, the, um, yeah, the next step was, you know, talking to my mom and I said, hey, I want to, um, I want to do website web design full time. And she said, okay, well, sure. I could, I could use your help. And we worked, we worked together on that for, I think two or three years. And it went not very well at all. We went, we went deeply into debt. Yeah. Um, you know, spent a lot of money that we didn't need to and uh, were picked clients who ended up not being able to pay um, we, uh, we worked really hard on a lot of bids that we didn't get. Wow. Um, it was a very, yeah, very frustrating time. And we, uh, had, you know, just a, a ton of credit card debt. I think about $150,000 of credit card debt wow. in 2000, maybe 2005, early 2005. And then, uh, four or five. And then we, we stopped being able to make the minimum payments on the debt. Oh boy! And so within 
yeah, within six months, you know, the debt went to $500,000 oh because of all the interest and penalties. Um, and so we were in a, we were in a pretty, pretty tough situation for a number of years there. Wow. And you eventually were able to pay that off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I had started a website in 2003 mm-hmm. that I called SEO Moz. Mm-hmm. Um, and I eventually, I think I moved it to its own domain in, in 2004. And we, uh, yeah, I had, I had started to learn SEO mostly because we couldn't afford to pay the subcontractors that we, uh, that we had hired to do that work for mm-hmm. our clients. Yeah. For people who may not know SEO, would you quickly explain what that is? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. Um, so SEO is an acronym that stands for search engine optimization. Mm-hmm. And it refers to the practice of trying to earn organic non-paid traffic from search engines like Google and Bing and Yahoo. That's right. And um, in the early 2000s, it was a very opaque, uh, very secretive, very sketchy practice Um there was a lot of manipulation and uh, what were called gray hat and black hat tactics to right. um, kind of you know to manipulate the search engines and violate their guidelines in order to get high rankings in the results and get lots of traffic. Uh, and the search engines were not particularly good at fighting spam um, yet. Yeah. So the yeah, so the practice had a really shady reputation, and a lot of the practitioners were very secretive about how they did what they did. Um, so I started this website called SEO Moz, which gave I, you an opportunity, right? Yeah, eventually it did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I took the name Moz from a bunch of other open source projects on the web, like DMoz and ChefMoz and oh, MapMoz, wow, cool. uh, mm-hmm. Mozilla Foundation, which is well known. They make uh, Firefox the browser. That's right, mm-hmm. and um, we, well, uh, for the first couple of years, I just, you know, blogged every night, almost every night, I think, uh, wow. five nights a week. So Sunday through Thursday and about my experiences trying to learn SEO, what was working, what wasn't, what other people were doing in the field. You know, I have lots of phone calls with folks and I, uh, eventually got, got that website to do pretty well. I think by probably the 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 middle or end of 2005, mm-hmm. it was getting some you know some real traffic, maybe like a thousand visits a day, mm-hmm. um, and we started getting inquiries instead of for web design work for SEO work, right? For people who said, "Hey, I want you to get my website to the top of Google's rankings," and um, well, and at the time Google was only only had about a third of the market share. So Yahoo and, and MSN search were really important as well. Right. But, you know, a few years later, Google sort of took all the market. That's right. um, mm-hmm. We, we were able to, to kind of you know, change directions and essentially shut down. I think we shut down the, the old marketing consultancy and web design business in 05 or 06 mm-hmm. and focused entirely on this SEO Moz thing. And by the middle of 2007, we were able to pay off the debt. Wow. How did that feel like? Gosh, I mean, I guess it, it definitely felt like a weight lifted, but yeah. to be honest, in a lot of ways, I think the way that I got through that period yeah. and through the whole debt thing was just to, to kind of compartmentalize and ignore it. I see. And also just to feel like, 
well, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> Whatever, mm. I'll just go about my day. But you um, had uh, collection agencies like show up at your office and sure. home. Like that must have been terrifying. Yeah, it was definitely freaky. It was also, um, I don't know. It somehow I I think because I was, you know, in my early twenties and kind of felt whatever it is, you know, kind of invincible and like, oh, we'll get through it. It'll mm-hmm. be fine. I, I don't have to worry about the debt. You know, that's my, my mom takes care of the financial side. Right. Like I'm just doing the work. Yeah. Um, I think I, I told myself that story for a long time, even though most of the debt was in my name. Um, yeah. yeah, I just kind of ignored it. And of course I wasn't, uh, you know, I was taking home no money for gosh, a good three years there. And um, and living with my with my girlfriend who was paying all of our rent and all of our bills. Um, oh wow! That was Geraldine, who uh, who's now my wife. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. She was with you through the hard times. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And then eventually, the company grew into a hugely successful company, right? So I think in. 2017, um, it was doing $45 million in revenue. It raised millions of dollars in venture capital funding and had hundreds of employees, right? So yeah, that's an amazing journey. Yeah, yeah. So we, we stopped doing consulting work and switched over to doing software. Um, and we became, yeah, for a long time, one of the leading Providers probably probably what folks would say was the leading provider of software for SEO professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happened in 2007, uh, and I I raised a round of funding um, from some local venture firms here in in Seattle, and became CEO of the company right. uh, in, two, in 2007, and then basically ran it for seven years, yeah, uh, and stepped down in 2014, right. And then you left the company earlier this year. Yeah, yeah. So I was an individual contributor for almost four years, mm-hmm. uh, the last four years at was. Yeah. Can you tell us about that decision? What led to you stepping down as CEO and then um, why you left the company earlier this year and how that came about? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stepping down as CEO, I... Um, in 2013, uh, was going through a bout of depression. Yeah. Um, and wow. that is, uh, yeah, it's a, that's kind of a, a tough thing. And I think, you know, I, I had talked to members of my executive team and they told me like, Hey, you know, your, um, sort of mental state is really affecting the rest of the team and the company. And, you know, we've got to do something about that. And I, uh, I talked to my uh, board of directors, my my two investors, to Michelle and Brad, and I told I told them that I wanted to step down and promote my longtime chief operating officer, mm-hmm. uh, Sarah, to the role of CEO. Um, and we'd been sort of, you know, partnering on decisions for a long time, and um, she had shown herself to be, you know, a very very impressive COO. And I thought, hey, maybe you know, she we'll do a good job as CEO as well. And uh, so, yeah, that conversation went well and my board agreed. And so in, I think it was February of 2014, something like that, um, 
I formally stepped down and, uh, and she took the reins as CEO. Um, and of course I, you know, I stayed at the company for another four years, but a few years into that, mm-hmm. um, we started having a lot of professional conflict and, um, you know, I think we just disagreed on a lot of things about how the business should go. And I, um, think I, you know, I felt kind of boxed out of, um, a lot of that decision-making process. And so in 20, uh, in 2016, Moz did some layoffs and then a lot of that, uh, professional conflict led into personal conflict as well. I see. Um, which, which I think is really unfortunate. And, uh, yeah, so that, that sort of led to me leaving. I think we, we had a conversation about me leaving right then, but, um, my, one of our investors said, Hey, we'd, we'd really like Rand to stay for another year. And so I stayed around for 2017. I see. Wow. How did that feel like you, this is a company that is very personal to you because it was something your mom had built since you were very young. And then for you to grow into this venture backed millions of dollars in revenue company, and then you stepping down and leaving the company, like that must not have been easy for you. (laughs) No, it was, uh, that was a very, sort of world-shaking experience for me. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Wow. And in your book, Lost and Founder, you talk very openly about um, dealing with depression and severe anxiety. And I, I really love that. Thank you so much. I think a lot of people need to hear it. I know people who are dealing with it, but they feel so alone. But yet for someone like you to share that so openly... I think a lot of people will feel like, wow, like maybe I'm not the only one. So how did this experience affect how you approach your work and life now? Yeah, um, I mean, it definitely changed how I'm going to be building my next company. So right. when I when I left Moz uh, earlier this year, I founded a new company um, the next day, actually. Wow. And <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't really want to waste time. Uh, and, uh, I, um, I'm definitely doing this one very differently. So I think, you know, in in a lot of ways, one of the things, one of the things that I learned that I realized is that I don't love companies that are, you know, hundreds of people big. Um, I really like, I really like small companies, you know, sub 50 people. And so I think I'm going to, intentionally keep this company uh, very small. My co-founder is the same way. Um, his name's Casey. Uh, Casey and I are both, you know, both really like that small company feel. Uh, we decided that we, we wanted to do a very different kind of uh, funding for this. So rather than raise venture capital, which, um, you know, institutional capital of all kinds has uh, requirements for, you know, the, the exit, basically once you, once you raise money, uh, you need to either have a, uh, significant exit that returns, you know, a certain amount of, um, certain multiple of that money to your investors, or you need to die trying. Right. And, and both right. of those outcomes are acceptable, but nothing in the middle really works for that. Right. You yeah. can't be a sort of a long-term profitable business that spits off dividends or, you know, become a, um, a B Corp and operate that way or, um, you know, turn the company over to its employees and be an employee owned company or, 
you know, all, all sorts of whatever, a hundred different ways that a company can decide what it wants to do uh, with its life long term. Uh, and so I, I don't love that binary forcing function, especially in the early stages when you don't know yet what you're going to be. Right. Uh, so we, we ended up raising a very, very different kind of round, a very unusual round of financing, um, 1.3 million, but from angel investors who basically can participate in profit sharing, uh, of the business, you know, kind of through dividends, through LLC units. And it's, um, yeah, almost unheard of in the startup world, but uh, we have open sourced our documents, our legal documents, worked with our lawyers to make those available. And uh, a few wow. other f- folks have actually reached out and said, hey, you know, we're going to be using this for our company. And um, yeah, so I'm hopeful that maybe some of these alternatives, uh, like what we're doing, will be more popular in the years ahead. Yeah, and certainly give people ideas about how to start and run a company that may not be how it's it's been done right now. Yeah, tech startup world is very odd. I've never understood why it's so celebrated how much a company has raised funding and then we don't really <laughs> hear about them anymore. Like I'm like, where do they go? You know, <laughs> and that's what's yep. been written yep. up, you know, in TechCrunch and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think that that like a lot of folks, I you know consumed a ton of media around the tech world and had this had this sense that in order to be you know a real entrepreneur a serious entrepreneur um i had to raise money you know i had to be venture backed you know that would that would sort of make me impressive among my among my peers and people would you know listen to what i had to say and think i was important and worthwhile and um yeah that uh i think that bias um, is pretty strong in the field, right? I know right. I, I talk to tons of startups all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Go out to coffee with folks here in Seattle, talk to people on the phone, all that kind of thing. And um, yeah, there's just a tremendous belief that, you know, that that funding is the only path, right? And that essentially that venture funding is the only path. And so, you know, folks that I talk to don't, they don't talk about like, okay, Rand, can you help me get, um, sort of get my company off the ground and find customers and become profitable. It's, I need help finding investors. How do I make my company attractive (laughs) to investors? Right. Um, And sometimes there's some, you know, there's a, there's some good crossover there, right? That investors want to see companies that will resonate with customers. But uh, it's odd that so many of us optimize for raising money, not for building you know, successful, profitable companies. Right. Um, and the weird, you know, the weirdest part of that is if you look at the statistics of sort of five-year survival rates, um, you know, once you raise money, so before you raise money, I think, you know, most, um, let's say software companies, right. The five-year survival rate, I think is somewhere in the 50% range, right. So mm-hmm. half of them make it, half of them don't. Uh, if the company has raised venture financing. I think that number drops below ten percent. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, maybe it's maybe it's fifteen percent, but it's it's very bad, right? That's so terrible. the day a company raises funding, you sort of go, "Congratulations!" <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Like, this, That's your this probably first isn't going to go well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
probably isn't going to go well for most folks. That's right. Um, and then might go very, very well for a very few folks. And that's the venture model, right? And they're, they're pretty upfront with that, right? They say yeah. nine out of 10 companies that we invest in is going to fail or fail to return you know, capital in the amounts that are uh, interesting and useful to the portfolio. And one out of 10 is going to return the whole fund. That's um, right. I think those, uh, yeah, those statistics are born out. I think it's actually it's worse than that. I think the number, the most recent numbers that I've seen from looking at sort of like, hey, someone goes into an accelerator program and then they get venture back. And I think it's like 96% fail to return, you know, whatever it is, three times their investor's money, which is sort of the minimum target. Oh, wow. That's... That's insane. Yet we only read about, oh, this company is an overnight success and they sold their company for a billion dollars and they're all super rich now. And I think that's what people aspire to and that's what they want to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a gold rush, right? I mean, yeah. cryptocurrency is kind of the same thing, right? The, mm, that's right? the tulips back in the 1600s are the same thing. And anytime you get, I think, uh, hey, there's a few people who got really rich, there'll be hundreds of people who will try that path and and not make it. Yeah, that's um, right. So maybe it's just a natural thing, but I, I, you know, I worry because um, it seems like, you know, if you were to ask someone, um, do we have more startups today than we used to? And is this sort of a golden age for startups? I think a lot of people would say yes. Right? Yeah. They feel like, gosh, there's startups everywhere. But in fact, in the United States, at least, uh, we are at the lowest number of new businesses being formed in 30 years. Wow. Um, those businesses, new businesses, businesses that are less than five years old, uh, have the lowest share of the economic you know, pie in the U.S. that they've had in you know, uh, our financial history, um, uh, at least since the you know, 20th century. And the um, number of people employed by startups is at the lowest level in 30 years. So wow. it's actually kind of a, it's kind of a desert for startups right now. Yeah, And I think a big part of that is because so, so many people who would be entrepreneurs and would start businesses um, pursue a very risky path. And a lot of people who think about becoming entrepreneurs, you know, look at those risky statistics and say, gosh, I don't think this is for me. That's you know, right. I can't afford to do this. So, right. Um, and certainly, I, you know. So what would be your advice for people who are now or want to start a company one day and become an entrepreneur? I mean, certainly I would say you should just consider that there are lots of alternatives to this one model that's been well amplified. Right? Right. The, the one model that gets all the press is, you know, raise, you know, raise venture, grow, die trying. Um, and the... The less, you know, the less well-covered ones are, um, you know, bootstrap it, be a consulting business for a little while and take some money on the side. And then as you slowly build your product, you know, turn that, turn that business into something profitable or um, raise money from all these alternative sources um, that exist, right? And uh, that can be everything from friends and family to uh, angel investors to some of the newer accelerator funds that don't force a venture path after um, to, you know, some of the unusual structures, like the ones that we, the one that we did, uh, for SparkToro, um, which is your new company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Which is the new company. Yeah. That's great. So 
What do you do now to manage your emotional health? Coming back to that topic that we're ta- discussing earlier. Yeah.、Um, I think that, so I found a few things to be really big for me, but it's different for everyone. And、mm-hmm. so I don't want to. Sure. No, I don't want to assume that what works for me will work for everyone else.、Um, certainly, some of the biggest things are、uh, sleep and, course,、yeah. and uh, sleep and exercise. Those, those two seem to do a, a really big thing. And so,、um, if, I have, yeah, if I have bad,、uh, bad sleep for a few nights or whatever, I will、uh, try and quickly correct that, usually with、um, you know, something. Simple like z e q u a l or,、mm-hmm. um, gosh, what's that?、Uh, melatonin, something like that. Yeah.、Um, just, to, just to help make sure that I sleep for a long time. I,、um, I also try and limit a lot of my morning meetings and activities so that I know that if I need it, I can get extra sleep、uh, in the morning.、Oh. And that's, that's definitely been helpful too.、Um, I think, to be honest,、um, You know, leaving Ma has removed a lot of stress for me. Obviously, it's, you know, there's some stress associated with, with building a new company. And、right. a lot of people would say, oh, gosh, that, that feels like it must be very stressful. And、um, I, don't, I don't know how to explain this, but no, comparatively,、yeah. it is really not. Yeah. <laughs>、um, I think that it depends what stresses you out, right? I think all of the challenges of building a new company and you know, getting a new product, finding the right people to work with,、um, you know, Uh, doing marketing and, and、um, growing the, you know, what you do, those, those things are not very stressful to me. I think they, they can sometimes be challenging, but not in a stressful way.、Um, politics stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, which, which you get a lot of at larger companies. I think that's the, that's the thing that always drove me crazy、um, yeah. and, and really harmed my. Mental and emotional health. you know, making, I think I, have that, I still have that thing from when I was a kid where I want, I want everyone to like me. I want people to get along. I want you know, people to sort of be happy and healthy in their jobs and to feel good toward their coworkers.、Right. And that,、uh, that felt really much easier for sure at 50 people than at 150 or 200 people.、Um, so, I, I, I think that's, that's one of the big reasons I want to stay small. I see. I remember reading in your book how, you know, when you're going through this depression, you couldn't sleep and your mind would be in a loop. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, right? We, one thought、yeah. leads to another, and then another thought leads to another, and then it just goes to not a great place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I've、um, uh, started practicing. Not, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but there's a A method for falling asleep quickly and sort of distracting yourself. Oh.、Um, because apparently, the way dreams work is that you, you know, they're, they're never on a single subject or around a single area. That's、and、right. So,、mm-hmm. um, the sort of one of the keys, at least for me, that I found to, fall, to falling asleep effectively is to, if I'm in bed, not spend much time thinking about any one thing. Oh,、so、interesting. You know, if I'm thinking about something and I find myself focusing on it, I have to, nope, quickly go to this other subject. Let's think about a game. Let's think about a TV show. Let's think about、um, what we're doing next week. Let's think about, you know, my、uh, relationship with Geraldine. Let's think about, you know, this friend of mine. Let's think, right? And just bounce, 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 bounce. And I found that to be pretty effective for 
um, turning off that loop. Wow. So quickly changing the topics of what you're thinking about intentionally. Yeah, exactly. Intentionally doing it. And then eventually your brain sort of, you know, puts you to, puts you to sleep pretty well. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I should try that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I also thought it was really interesting how you talk about um, we can only control behavior and not the outcome. Yes. Yeah, I think this is, you know, that was something that as a CEO and a founder, you feel like you are responsible and, and you are responsible right. um, for the outcome. But I think coming to a level of acceptance with the fact that you can't control, A, you can't control other people's behavior. You can only control your own. That's right. And you don't get to control, you don't get to fully control outcomes, even if you're technically responsible for them. I think that that's a very tough distinction for a lot of CEOs to make. And I think that's why so many of us have anxiety and depression and emotional issues and mental health problems and, you know. Um, all the way up to high suicide rates, which is which is quite terrible too. Yeah, uh, and those, um, I think, reconciling that difference between technically on paper, I'm responsible for how this organization, um, you know, performs, uh, but I cannot fully control it because I cannot control the market. That's and right. I cannot control. Uh, how other companies behave, and I can't control how everyone on my team, you know, behaves. And so my only job is to do the best that I can do, right. and then see where the cards fall, right? Right. And not not feel like it is, um, you know, that I am the successful one or the failure. When you, you know, when you look out there, I think one of the biggest problems with media coverage of startups in the technology world and, and businesses in general is that the creators, the founders and, and CEOs and executives are lauded as um, sort of like, oh, well, it is, it is only by the genius of oh, yeah. Bill Gates that Microsoft, you know, was able to do what it did, or it's only right. because Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, such a brilliant person, blah, blah, blah. Nope. Uh, I think that the, mm-hmm. not true at all. Uh, there are probably 10,000 people who are, more qualified and smarter than both of them, right. um, if not a hundred thousand. And but they had uh, good luck, of course, uh, good timing. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, were born into extraordinary situ- circumstances, right? I mean, yeah, of course. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's parents were millionaires before he was born, and same with Bill Gates, right? Um, right. Bill Gates came from one of the wealthiest families in the Seattle area, right? That's right. And so, um, and and that in in many of these cases, uh, I think the, the one of the interesting things when I looked at the research for Lost and Founder was that um, you know entrepreneurs, uh, even my situation, which you know my parents had plenty of money. They you know my dad and mom both worked. You know they made reasonable you know middle class income salaries. Uh, my dad was an engineer at Boeing, and my mom sort of running a small business. Uh, you know, most entrepreneurs come from family money. Yeah, uh, that is that is that true. is the, the majority of the folks in in the United States, and that didn't that wasn't always the case, but it is the case has been the case for the last twenty five thirty years. So, you know, it's um, I think we have to hold ourselves to a different standard. That's right. Uh, than we do right now, and not not try and 
compare ourselves to everyone else. That's a really hard thing to do. That is a very hard. So how do you do that? How do you not compare yourself to other people and their success? Especially when you know it's not hmm. healthy for us, right? Yeah. How do you do that? Let's see. Um, I think one of the best ways is to try to build something different. Oh. To not pursue exactly the same path, right? So my my goal is I do not particularly love big businesses. I really despise monopolies. Right. In fact, I think most Americans are, despite our political differences all over the place, we are very agreed on this fact, right? That that wealth concentration is bad, and we would much rather see lots of people have more money rather than a very small number of people have all the money. Right. Um, and so I think by um, getting to that place mentally, I can then say, all right, so what is my goal with SparkToro? I want it to be very successful. I do want it to make a lot of money, but I don't want it to be um, a, I'm not interested in building a you know, billion, multi-billion dollar outcome. That's not, that's not my goal. Uh, I don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a difference, that, a positive difference in my life between Geraldine and I having, you know, $15 million or $150 million or $1.5 billion, right? right. Those are um, not, you know, great. My, my private jet is fancier. I, I, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, are you, right. what are you talking about? Yeah. Flying, flying business class is amazing. I, oh, I only yeah. get to do that a couple of times, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think, um, I think by setting different goals for yourself uh, got um, it. and by, and by uh, idealizing or, or, or um, finding different people that you want to emulate. Right. And why, that right? That you talk be, about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That mm-hmm. can be really big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And which leads to the next question I had for you is uh, the importance of being self-aware, Right. And it's not only important creating and growing a successful business, but also very, very important in our personal lives, right? Which, so that way we can make decisions that is right for us, um, not necessarily right for everybody else. So how can we become more self-aware? What do you do in your, in your life? Gosh, this is a really tough one. I mean, certainly I think therapy can go a long way. Yeah, of course. Right? Mm-hmm. A, a, um, a professional therapist's job is, is really to help you see why why you see yourself in a certain way and why you behave the way you do and, and then spending time on it. I think it's, there's also a, an aspect of this that's recognizing that none of us are self-aware, that that, that yeah. is a constant journey. We're always learning more about ourselves. We're always uncovering um, sort of myths that we hold to be true about ourselves, right? Like, I thought I was a, this kind of person. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe wow. I'm not a, that kind of person. And how do I... I um, how do I change my behavior based on that? How do I investigate that? Um, I think a big part of it is spending time with people who are more self-aware and who help us see ourselves um, for what we are. Uh, and hopefully that happens, you know, in your, um, you know, in your romantic relationships and it happens in your friendships and um, it happens in your family. Family is a tough one. That's of course. Um, brought with. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, many, 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 for many people, I think it, uh, it's incredibly hard to um, gain real self-awareness around family stuff because there's just so many things that, that trigger all of us in those relationships. Yeah, so um, true. But yeah. 
And you wrote about how your wife was uh, being diagnosed with a brain tumor and then and you decided to share this in front of everyone in your company. Yeah, I mean, that was a very, um, very difficult, very emotional period, I think. Yeah. Um, probably for me more than more than her. We got lucky. Her her tumor um, was operated on and removed, and they they think it's um, not quite benign, but growing so slowly as to be nearly nearly benign. Like it probably won't cause her any problems until she's in her nineties. Wow. Um, mm. So yeah, that's great. And then, how did the people react when you share? You were the CEO. And you had this very personal thing going on in your life. And most people try to hide it, you know, like don't bring it to the office. You know, it makes you look weak and you should just be tough and not talk about it. But why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's never how I've been. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in transparency and I, right. I really hate hiding things from people. And I, um, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't think that I could be my my most effective self, and I um, I felt like I needed other people to step up and to help, and so um, yeah, I told I told everyone at Moz um, what was going on, and there yeah, the reaction was very positive. I think people were um, really supportive and um, and caring, and um, and that brought me a lot of. Uh, comfort to see that yeah that's amazing it's often rare for people to see such an honest and vulnerable and transparent ceo so i hope um you know that's that you bring that to your new company which you're you're building spark turl so can you tell us about what you're building sure yeah um well i think yeah it depends on your on your team right some teams some teams will respect that sort of behavior and right. look for it and other teams um, not so much. And so I think, I think the, you know, the right thing to do for folks is, is to hire the team that you, that, that fits with your values and how you operate. Um, right. And also to, you know, if you're, if you're joining a company to join a company or a team that, that fits with your values when, when there's a mismatch, I think that drives everyone crazy. Yeah, and I thought it was also very interesting how you pointed out oftentimes companies hire based on skill. Um, how much experience yeah. do you have in coding this kind of software or whatever? Um, and then try to fit them into the culture. But that doesn't work as well, right? So you try to do it the other way around. Yeah, I think that, you know, like everyone, we try and hire people with um, with the right skills. But if we're going to make a compromise, it will be because someone is a phenomenal sort of culture and values fit. Um, and we feel like, Hey, everyone, you know, everyone at their job would say, I am much more talented at this than I was two years ago. Right. I've gotten a lot better at it, but culture and values fit tends not to improve nearly as quickly. That's right. Um, and so I think people make this mistake of, well, I'll hire this person. They seem really talented, even though they're probably an asshole and they're going to piss off everyone they work with, but they get good work done. Yeah. Right. And we'll try and work with them. We'll try and work with them on how they fit into the team. Yeah. Um, and then that, that never goes well, as opposed to, Oh, this person, you know, they're, they're going to need some training and some upgrading and um, you know, six in the first six months, they're not going to be as productive, but uh, that's okay. We're going to, you know, we're going to train them up and six months from now, they're going to be, you know, awesome. And they're a great culture fit. And they add a lot to our, 
um, you know, team in terms of values and people wanting to work with them and, you know, excited to see, come into the office and see them every day that, okay, you know, let's, let's get that person on board. Wow. So it's like kind of taking a different approach or unconventional approach to hiring. Yeah, I think that's in a way. Yep. Yeah. Great. So can you tell us what Spark Toro does and what types of services it'll provide? Yeah, so it's another software company in the in the marketing world, not in uh, not in SEO, but um, instead um, hoping to. So we are first off only a couple months into the company, mm-hmm. um, and you know I think we've got probably at least six to nine months more of of building software before we have any kind of product. But what we're hoping to do is help um, help marketers find the sources the publications and people that influence their audiences. Wow. Um, Very useful. uh, Today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Today that's a real challenge. You know, if, if you and I go out and we start a new, um, you know, we make a new gadget that helps professional chefs in restaurant kitchens um, to prepare better meals and, you know, um, make their, whatever it is, processes more efficient and, uh, and we have this great product, and now we need to go reach restaurant chefs. Um, maybe we know a few of them personally, but we're not really sure where where should we go spend our marketing and advertising dollars and time, and what you know what events should we go to, and which podcast do chefs listen to that <laughs> right. we could potentially you know sponsor, and what YouTube channels do they subscribe to, and wh- where what blogs do they read, do they, who do they follow on Twitter or LinkedIn, or do they even use those services? Figuring that out right now is an incredibly problematic, challenging issue. Right. Um, there's just not a lot of good data. You can you can do large scale surveys, you know, run by a PR firm. Those will cost you many tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, but Casey and I had this feeling like, man, software should solve this, right? I should be able to type in chefs and then say, you know, um, I'm trying to reach chefs in Western Canada. Uh, what do they pay attention to? Oh, it turns out, you know, there's these three podcasts that a lot of them listen to. And there's this event in Vancouver that a lot of them go to. There's these 10 people on Twitter that a lot of them follow. Perfect. You know, that that's what I need because I want to be able to reach out to those folks and, you know, not just, not just spend advertising, right. But be able to do all sorts of organic marketing, reach out and see if I could maybe be a guest on the podcast and talk about this new product, or uh, maybe I could sponsor this event, but maybe I could speak at this event. Um, you know, maybe I could write a, <clears throat> a guest editorial for this for this blog or this publication that all these people read. Those those things, um, just discovering those is what we want to try and help folks do. Wow, I think this is a very very necessary software that has to exist. So I'm looking forward to it coming out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will help me find like- my audience, right? For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So, Rand, you've had such a successful career. Um, mm, I'm and, not sure I agree with that, but well, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I know you do. <laughs> um, so, what have you learned about success that you can share with us? Um, gosh, I think so. Success is different to every different person. Of course. But um, how would you I define think- it? Well, for, so for me, um, I think that success in my role at Moz, right, sort of the, the um, 
you know, the 14, 15 years that I was there, uh, gosh, more than that, was really uh, all about getting an exit that returned you know, minimum three, hopefully five to 10 times my investor's money back to them. I that see. is, you know, that's what I signed up for. Um, that was absolutely the goal. That is how, you know, all the employees at the company will all have stock options. That's how they're going to make money. Uh, that's how, you know, my, my mom and I, the founders make money. Uh, and I did not, I was not able to successfully complete that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wrote about in the book how we had an exit offer that would have been right. extraordinary for everyone. Right. And I turned it down because I thought we would be worth even more in the, you know, in the years ahead. And yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's funny to realize that when you are growing fast and you're a $6 million a year company, you are worth, in a lot of people's eyes, you're worth a lot more than when you're a $50 million company, but you're growing slowly. Right. Most people uh, don't know that. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. So I, I think I think that, that I missed my opportunity to be successful with Moz, but I'm hoping... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I hope that um, that the company can still do well. I think it's uh, you know it's got a tough road ahead of it, but I um, I'm still the chairman of the board and and own eighteen percent of the stock, and um, yeah, certainly have have high hopes for for Moz um, being able to get its growth rate up again and um, and do well. Mm-hmm. The um, I think the big difference, the big thing that I've learned is that. If you make your criteria for success uh, incredibly challenging to achieve, mm. it is, um, and, and statistically very unlikely, and you give yourself only one path for success, it can be very elusive. Wow. Um, and so I think that the biggest thing that I'm doing with SparkToro is just allowing for the possibility of success coming in many, many forms. Oh. You know, success for SparkToro could be. Uh, we build a 50-person, you know, company that does 30 or 40 million dollars in revenue each year, and you know, we have a big, I don't know, sale for 100 or 150 million dollars, uh, like a classic sort of venture-style exit. Mm-hmm. Um, or we uh, have a 10-person company, and it uh, it only makes six or seven million dollars a year, and we put half of that towards profits and our investors make plenty of money and we make plenty of money and everyone's happy. Um, it could even be a $2 million a year company or a million dollar a year company. And it would still be sort of successful um, to us and our investors as long as we can you know, make it profitable. And so, um, yeah, see. just setting up a structure that allows for a lot more trajectories that yield success. Yeah. Uh, I think is is a really wise thing, especially for an early stage company. That's right. You know, maybe you do, maybe you do want to be a you know venture backed rocket ship, and that's where you're aiming for. But why commit yourself to that on day one? That's right. Right? Why make that the only thing that can possibly yield success? Especially if you're following that or chasing that success because of not necessarily that is it's what you want, but because. That's right. what everybody else wants, and that's what makes yeah. you look good, right? Right, and I have definitely fallen prey to that myself, sure. Yeah, yeah. So now that you've had this experience, like kind of allowing a broader definition for success of what may be possible for you and your new company, then you have 
a lot higher chance of being successful. <laughs> Let's hope so. So my last question to you is,、um, what would be your words of advice to people who want to pursue their dreams?、Um, I mean, I think that if you have the if you have the means and capacity,、mm-hmm. I think pursuing your dreams is a wonderful thing. And if you don't,、um, that is it is just as noble, just as amazing to be able to go to you know a, a job or a stressful job and.、Um, You know, make money that supports your family and create opportunity for a next generation of people,、um, and to be, you know, a be a great human being. That is、um, that that is also a noble、Absolutely. pursuit, and I think that not、mm-hmm. all of us get the chance to pursue our dreams、mm-hmm. um, because we're we're held back by a lot of things. So I think for those of us who can,、right. our obligation. Is to make it possible for more people in the future, and that's、uh, certainly something that I, I hope that I can do、right. um, with my career in the future. So, where can people find you, Rand?、Uh, I am most active on Twitter at Rand Fish is my handle there,、mm-hmm. uh, and you can also find me on the Spark Toro website, SparkToro dot com,、um, where I blog every week or two. I see, got it. And then I hope our listeners will check out your new book too, Lost and Founder. So thank you so、yeah. much, Rand, for sharing all of your stories and your journey. And thank you so much for being so honest with your journey. Not, not many people can be as honest and transparent as you. And then I hope that a lot of our listeners will listen to you and be inspired and and continue to do really great things. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Sina. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey! Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, I would really appreciate it if you can subscribe and write a review for the podcast. It really helps me to spread the word. And I would love to hear from you about the thoughts and the feedback you have for the show. And this is how I can keep improving and make better shows for you. Please go to selinalee.co. That is C E L I N A L E E dot C O and leave me a message there. So thank you again, and I'll be back soon with another episode.